Okay, so to <coughs> go a little further in our exploration of uh, what mindfulness means and what its place is. Uh, so a question, and a uh, sort of very obvious question, but very important question is, why? Why, why bother practicing mindfulness? And so to see mindfulness actually in its place, in the context of the practice as a whole. <clears throat> actually that takes quite some time, uh, in my experience, for people to really get an understanding of what it is that they're doing, <laughs> how it's all kind of hanging together, how it's working together. Uh, it's not something that's immediately obvious and Often it takes decades uh, to really understand what, what, what practice is doing and how it's working. So the most, to put it in a context, the most common way that the Buddha talked about practice was in terms of freedom from suffering. That that was the aspiration for practice. So most often he said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. So it's a completely uh, compassionate response to uh, the suffering that's present in, in human life. And so the whole orientation of practice is uh, to, to freedom from unnecessary suffering. And the, the, the sort of varieties of suffering that a human being can experience are, are endless. I mean, from the, the range of, uh, you know, utter, deep torment of being and, and madness and uh, all kinds of grief to just niggling discomfort something just a bit not quite right and so the, the Dharma, the practice addresses the whole range of that suffering and also in, the, in, in, its, uh, in its breadth so we can suffer over all kinds of things as I said before, we suffer over our bodies, how they appear, how they feel, or the aging process. Certainly around our emotions, in relationship, how much suffering is there. <clears throat> in our roles, in our work, in our self-image. And it just goes on. There's this vast uh, proliferation of possibility of suffering in our life. And this is what the Buddha says, I teach freedom from all that. Freedom from all, all that's unnecessary in there. And much of the time, a lot of the people that come to practice, this is really what's, what's firing them, what's firing us. It's, it's a sense of suffering in life and a sense that it's possible to look at it, understand something about it and be free. If not completely, at least to a certain extent or to a large extent. But at times, for some people, that's actually not the thing that's really firing practice, not the thing that's really got the heart on fire. And at times, it's more a question of, um, of truth. The heart has a deep hunger for truth, for knowing what's real, for knowing what's true. This is something inbuilt in the human heart, something deep and, 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 and precious. So at times that's really the motivation for practice. And that can be, our, as I touched on earlier, our personal truth, 
you know, understanding myself psychologically, understanding how my background, family upbringing, how that all influenced how I am and how I respond, what's particular to me, the realm of personal truth. But more than that, the realm of what we might call universal truths. So Buddhists go on and on and on about impermanence and uh, the unsatisfactoriness of the world and that sort of thing. And all this is what we might call um, universal truths. They're, They're the same for me, the same for you, they're the same for everyone. The fact of impermanence is just something woven in to our experience of life. And it's a truth that the heart has to open to. So there's personal truth, there's universal truth, there's what we might call ultimate truth. So, uh, an understanding of what the ultimate nature of ourselves and of things is, what the true nature of things is. Not something that can be put into language or easily defined but the promise is an opening to that brings the most uh, the deepest and the most radical kind of freedom but all these levels we might say of truth are important in our life you can't ignore one just say I'm just interested in the person I'm just interested in the ultimate So there's freedom as a motivating factor, there's truth as a motivating factor. And I also feel that uh, at times, and certainly for some people, for much of the time, what's a very deep motivating factor is the aspiration to love. That we, we also have a sense, and sometimes it's, it's a dim sense, that uh, our hearts are capable of... Uh, a love that we may only have have glimpsed, something so deep and so boundless, and we almost uh, we yearn for that. And again, the Dharma is is directed towards that possibility as a, as a very real and very living thing. <clears throat> so, freedom and truth and love is kind of where the whole path is heading. Which to me sounds lovely and really beautiful. And uh, the, the gift of the Buddha is his, his, his practicality in saying, okay, this is what you're looking for. What does a human being need? What does a human being need to question, to develop, to uh, let go of in order that these possibilities, beautiful deep possibilities, open up? It's very pragmatic. He sort of, after his enlightenment, he thought about he spent six weeks in one place thinking about how is it that I could uh, lead others, I could show others uh, what I've discovered. What would they need? What would they need to uh, do and develop? <clears throat> and so he offered this eightfold path, which some of you may be familiar with, the Noble Eightfold Path. And without going into too much detail, it basically involves our whole life involves looking at, investigating, working with, questioning uh, our views in life, how are we looking at life, what are our intentions, are they intentions of kindness, of compassion, or of greed, of uh, accumulation, 
uh, our livelihood, the kinds of ways we interact with people, our actions, people, uh, animal life, planet, all this right action, you know, are we looking at that? We can't expect to just come and meditate and be mindful and and not, uh, uh, you know, everything would just sail along fine, thank you very much, if, if, if all these other factors are not looked at. So right action, right livelihood, right speech, the way we're communicating with each other. It's a whole really uh, vast and intricate <coughs> arena for investigation. How are we communicating and listening with each other? You know, uh, what is right effort in spiritual practice? What does that mean? And then, this, then, then the seventh factor of the path, right mindfulness. So what we're talking about today, and giving attention to the bodily life, to the feeling life, to the mental life, and other aspects. And then finally, right, what we might call right depth of meditation, right collectedness of mind. And so right mindfulness, and the reason I'm saying all this, is that the Buddha offered this whole path, and we're talking about today mindfulness. And it's actually just one part of, of, of a much wider path which uh, accommodates, encapsulates our whole life. So our whole life is involved in the path, and this mindfulness is just one part of that. So as I, I think I said earlier, Mindfulness, awareness, presence, being in the present moment. Beautiful as that is, it's not the goal of the path. It's, it's absolutely not the goal. It can't be. So, you know, to have an aspiration to be mindful all the time is wonderful, but it's not, it's not actually the point of practice. And it's probably impossible. So another way that sometimes I think mindfulness gets a little bit um, twisted, maybe the wrong the wrong way, is sometimes we can either through hearing someone or reading or just from our own sense have an idea that what we're doing when we meditate is sitting down, becoming aware, and in this process sort of emptying out all the accumulation of stress and knottedness and uh, garbage and old karma and it's a matter of just emptying this out and sitting through uh, that difficult process and gradually getting lighter and lighter and more and more purified exhausting our karma that way is is one one phrase but this is not uh, the Buddha never taught this way never ever uh, Said, in fact, he ridiculed people who had that view. But it, it is quite a view that's fairly uh, commonly held, and we can almost slip into sometimes without realizing it. So that's not the function of mindfulness. Sometimes it is true that through practice, uh, things could use the language they come up from from within and they're released. It's true, but. Uh, there's actually more going on there than meets the eye and, and that can never, ever be uh, the, the primary function of practice. So mindfulness is embedded, as I said, in this path, in this eightfold path. It's a whole wide, deep path involving our whole being. 
And so partly what's, we could say, embedded in mindfulness is our intentions in mindfulness. So this word, mindfulness, is, is, is a word that found its way into the culture. And, and there's, you know, uh, huge corporations giving, giving workshops for their, uh, you know, executives in mindfulness. And the idea is how to uh, relax a little bit, bring efficiency, because a certain amount of efficiency does come with, with presence, with attention, bring that efficiency into the workplace so that the profits can, can rise. And, you know, maybe all very well, whatever. But that's not mindfulness in the sense of practice, because mindfulness in the sense of practice is, has within it woven in what the Buddha would call noble intention, the intention for uh, deep understanding, for freedom, and not just my freedom, not just my freedom, the freedom of all beings. So the motivation, it's not really what we call spiritual practice of awareness, of attention, unless that motivation is, is, is uh, fueling it. Now, of course, when, when we come to practice, you, you can't expect to just sit down for the first time and have this uh, you know, boundless aspiration to liberate all beings. It's not, it's not realistic. So the motivation is something that, that transforms over time. Um, so I sometimes share that when, when I started uh, practicing about 20, 21 years ago, I saw a, I saw a poster in, in the college where I was at, and uh, it said, meditation, something, something, uh, power of mind, cl- power of mind, clarity of mind. And I thought, great, I'll go along and, and get some of this. It was for a class. I'll go along and get some of this power of mind, clarity of mind. And then... Uh, I'll be able to study more efficiently. And so that will leave more time for drinking, uh, which <laughs> at the time seemed to be the main purpose of, of, of university life. But, and, and then over time, uh, the motivation changes. The mo- you know, just a little bit, but uh, there's, there's sort of more of a sense of, of actually practicing genuinely genuinely practicing for other beings that my freedom my peace my well-being is not any more important than uh, than that of others and this is a, a transformation that should come with practice so To recap something I touched on briefly earlier, when the Buddha talks about mindfulness, he's, he's quite specific about what it is we need to be mindful of. Mindfulness of the body and all, all its aspects, and we don't have time to go into all of that today. Mindfulness of the emotional life, mindfulness of the thinking life, mindfulness of certain, uh, the presence or absence of certain qualities of mind, like love, like calmness, like equanimity, and we'll go into this a little bit later on. So the mindfulness is there. We're um, encouraged to give certain things extra attention. Really explore those things because that's where the real suffering is is wrapped up in. But generally, the general statement is is be present whatever you're doing. 
wherever you are, whatever you're doing, can there be that aliveness of presence there? And when we begin to practice that way, when we uh, invite this quality of presence, of attention into our lives more and more, uh, we find that to live mindfully, to live with presence, is actually a very restful way of being, a very relaxing way of being. So usually uh, we are off thinking about tomorrow, yesterday, what he said, what she said, what they didn't say, what I said, something, 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 work, worrying, and, and the mind has no rest. And we're never really uh, being nourished by the present moment, by the life, the, the mystery of the present moment. And we discover that to, to bring ourselves and bring this, uh, this aliveness into the present moment is actually something that gradually uh, becomes a very restful way of being, less entangled, less caught up, less dragged around. Now, that's not to say that the practice of mindfulness doesn't involve effort. I mean, it certainly does, and it's, as I said before, it's, we're going against the momentum of our habit of inattention. So it really does involve effort and hard work sometimes. And it also very much, and there's no real getting around this, uh, mindfulness practice involves opening to the difficult. Finding the willingness, the courage, the inner resources to open to what's difficult in life. And that could be with the body. So when there's pain in the body, uh, the encouragement of of uh, meditative practice is to actually open to that, to turn towards that, instead of just immediately taking a pill or shifting or uh, shifting posture or fleeing, fleeing the fact of having a body, which includes the fact of pain. The encouragement is, act- is to open to it, slowly, gradually, with kindness. There's nothing of any machismo here. It's just about exploring with kindness what's difficult. The body is difficult sometimes. The heart certainly is difficult sometimes. The mind is often difficult, often problematic. And to explore that, to open to it, and what's difficult between people or in one's life situation. So all this, uh, it's impossible. There's no human being who lives a life that runs its course without periods of difficulty often great difficulty. So part of practice is sometimes practicing with what's only a little bit difficult, just as much as we can, and through that gaining the uh, strength, the confidence, the inner resources to open more and more to what's difficult, and life does present us with what's difficult, and very rarely at a time that's convenient. And so practice is something that strengthens our ability to open to what's difficult. And yet still, generally, to live mindfully, to live with awareness, is a relaxing and restful way of being. It's also what we might call uh, energizing or, or enlivening. So often, we live in this way, as I say, pulled by thought, or dragged into tomorrow or yesterday, or worries or concerns, or distractions. And there's so much... Uh, in the culture, uh, in our lives, that's there specifically, deliberately to distract us. 
So we get caught in thought and caught in distraction. To practice mindfulness gradually begins to uh, remove, uh, in a way to, could say, to wash some of that dullness from the senses. So often people, when they come on retreat or when they've been practicing for a while, the grass really does look greener. The sky really does look bluer. Food really does taste more. The, the sort of accumulated dullness uh, coating our senses is, is begins to be uh, let go of, released. And there's, a, there's an aliveness that comes there. A brightness that comes. With this uh, comes another what we could say another level or dimension of satisfaction in life. Another level and dimension of fulfillment in life and a sense of connection with life. We pay attention to breathing, to walking, to the hands washing the dishes, to eating, to whatever it is, to listening. And in that connection, that coming close, this bare attention that I was talking about earlier, uh, we begin to feel really connected to life. And there's a preciousness in that. And we begin to really have a sense that I, I know that when I come to the end of my life and it's, I'm lying on my deathbed, I, I will feel that I have lived. And it won't be because I've uh, you know, gone scuba diving off Morocco coast or bungee jumping off the Eiffel Tower or whatever. Uh, it will be just because the simple things I've touched really deeply. And they've gone in and they've touched the heart really deeply. I feel connected to life. And what we could say, perhaps in the sort of modern so- social era, is often what people are suffering from is, is a kind of disconnection from life. It's almost as if everything's... I, I remember actually when, as a teenager, feeling as if uh, everything was just almost through, through a glass, not, not quite being in touch with life. And there is a pain in that, whether we are aware of it or not. And there's a deep pain in that, this disconnection. So one of the main functions of mindfulness is really to connect us with the, uh, to make us intimate with life. And we, we grow to love that connection. We grow to love that, uh, the fulfillment that comes through being connected often with the ordinary. And we feel we belong to life. And that's a priceless feeling. So as we practice, and, and e- either if it's in the context of a longer retreat or sometimes in a short time, or over our daily practice, over, over, over time. One of the things that happens, and I feel it's a very important part of practice, an important uh, function of mindfulness, is there's, there's a sensitizing of the being. The, 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 the whole being, the mind, the heart, the body, becomes more and more sensitive. There's a sort of uh, refinement of the being. So, and this can have its beautiful aspect and its challenging aspect. So, the body often for practitioners becomes more sensitive. We become aware of uh, sensations, movements of energy that we weren't previously aware of. 
some of it's great and some of it's mm, not so great. And yet this is the willingness of mindfulness to open to all. What is it to be alive? What is it to be a human being? And some of that sensitivity actually involves opening up to expressions of energy in the body that are not in the realm of what's uh, normally encountered without practice. So the body is actually changing and things are opening, channels are opening, energy is opening in the body. This is all part of what I mean by sensitizing. There's a a sensitivity and a, a, a subtleizing going on of the being. Physically, emotionally, So again, we become aware of perhaps uh, shades of our emotional life that we weren't really aware of before. There's, there's a sensitivity to what's going on in the heart, what's coming and going. And again, there may be openings to a range of emotion that's quite uh, out of what might be ordinarily encountered without without practice. And this could be, uh, and, and often is for, for, for some people, you know, waterfalls of joy, for instance, or depths of peace. And it may also include opening to what's very difficult emotionally. Uh, so either grief from the past, or just sometimes the existential pain. One opens to the pain of others, of ourselves, something in life. And this is all part of a sensitizing and opening of the heart uh, that comes with practice, usually gradually, but sometimes in sort of jolts of suddenness. And it's part of what it is to deepen in mindfulness, part of what comes with mindfulness. And similarly, there's a sensitizing to the, the mental life. So we can become aware, where we weren't before, of all the shades of, for instance, intentionality in our interactions. I touched on before. What's, what are my hidden agendas uh, in any situation? So this sensitivity, this deepening of sensitivity is a big part of, of uh, what comes with mindfulness. And in a way the mindfulness keeps pace with that sensitivity. So the sensitivity comes and mindfulness also becomes more subtle, more sensitive. And it deepens, they deepen together. And one of the other aspects that uh, comes organically out of practice of mindfulness, hopefully, is, it's hard to find the right word, what we might call receptivity. So this is what I touched on a couple of times. It's a sort of uh, opening to other ways of seeing and feeling life. So the typical ordinary is Humdrum, alarm clock goes, get out of bed, off to work, I'm here, you're there, I'm talking, you're listening. It's all very ordinary, and that's, uh, that's fine. In that very ordinariness, though, as I was talking about with the walking, with the breathing, there's, there's a deep mystery present. It's just a, there's something unfathomably uh, deep and mysterious there. And part of... I think very much the function of mindfulness is, is, and it goes with the sensitivity, there's something opening in the being. And again, usually slowly, usually gradually, sometimes barely perceptibly. And it's uh, the receptivity of the being is opening up. 
So the ordinary becomes extraordinary. And uh, we don't need so much to uh, pursue some uh, escalated sense of something extraordinary or dramatic to get our sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, to get a sense of excitement. There's something right there in the simplicity of the present moment that is, uh, that is deeply touching. And that also includes meditation experiences. So uh, important as they are, and I do think they are important for, for some people gravitate more towards them than others, but uh, there can be hugely extraordinary experiences that open up in meditation. And yet still the consciousness returns to a normal consciousness. And that's not to throw out uh, what opens in meditation, but just to say, if the extraordinary, if on returning to the ordinary, if then the ordinary is not filled uh, or a little bit more filled with uh, something uh, beautiful, something extraordinary, then these extraordinary states have not really done their job. And we can't stay there all the time. But this receptivity to mysteries is a big part of what uh, what's important, I feel, in mindfulness practice. So the, the Buddha talks, you know, about basically paying attention to everything in, in sort of nutshell. And so people who've been practicing for a while, you, you try and practice this. And often, though, we're practicing either on the cushion or off the cushion, and something mm. doesn't feel. <laughs> It doesn't feel fluid. We feel, we feel contracted or stuck or there's some difficulty that we're entangled with. So it might be at that point to ref, refine or, or to go a little bit deeper into what mindfulness means in some of its aspects and check what's needed here, what's missing. So sometimes when we feel a bit stuck, something's a bit contracted. There's, we know we're being mindful, but some, somehow it's not... It's not helping. We can check a few things. The first thing is, if there's difficulty, do we actually recognize what's going on? Okay, this sounds kind of obvious, but sometimes there's just um, a sense of something being a problem and we don't actually realize, oh, it's because... Uh, um, I remember someone telling me a while ago that they, they were feeling this discomfort and it, it's, they realized they were actually talking in a store with someone and they realized it was because they were still holding their shopping and they'd been standing there talking for however long and it was, it was heavy, so very mundane. But just to recognize what's going on. So mindfulness has this quality of recognizing. Or, uh, what's probably more common and perhaps more important is just to recognize, oh, there's grief going on, or there's sadness going on, or it's fear going on. Sometimes fear is running its loops, and vibrating in the body, and we're not even aware that fear is going on. We're just, and we're reacting to it. So to recognize what's going on, oh, it's fear, oh, it's this. So recognition, very important aspect. Second aspect of mindfulness that you may want to check in with when, when things feel difficult is the quality of 
uh, acceptance. So mindfulness, uh, in, in one of its aspects, has this quality of accepting whatever is going on. Remember I touched on before, it just knows what's going on in the mind. There isn't that judgment of it. There isn't this, uh, I want to get rid of. There isn't this pushing away. That's something else. The mindfulness itself is more like uh, just openly holding what's present in the moment. It has a quality of acceptance in it. So that, that quality of acceptance is, is similar to the quality of kindness. So sometimes we're being mindful, but some part of us is actually crushing our teeth and wanting to push this thing away, or saying, it can't be that, I don't want it to be that. Whatever it is, grief, anger, pain in the body. So this quality of acceptance, to just check, is that a piece that's missing if I'm having difficulty? So recognition, acceptance third aspect uh, to check for is what we call investigation so I'll talk more about this later but right now what it means is sometimes we can be mindful we know what's going on yeah it's okay it's going on I guess but we're a little bit removed from what's going on perhaps there's some difficulty in the body or um, or even with the breath it's sort of yeah okay it's coming in it's coming out there's some pain in the body Okay, there's some fear, there's some grief. But a quality of investigation in this sense right now means that the attention really goes close and becomes intimate with, with the experience, investigates the texture of the experience. So what's the texture of the sensations of the breath? Or if you're working with the body sensations, the texture of those sensations, what does it really feel like? Uh, that intimacy can uh, can be freeing and uh, enlivening, and is often some some one of the pieces that might be missing. Let's check for that. So recognition, acceptance, investigation. Fourth one uh, is a little bit more subtle. It's uh, what we might call non-identification. So what does this mean? It means that typically human beings, when uh, something is going on, when there's a pain in the body, there's the thought or the sense even, my pain, my body, my, my, uh, my anything or my thought. We have a thought that doesn't reflect so well on us or a difficult thought and the sense is mine. And sometimes we're not even aware that that's going on. But mindfulness, that's something, that identification with saying me or mine, this body is me or mine, the sensations are me or mine, the emotional life is me or mine, that identification is actually something extra. We don't, it's very uh, subtly and deeply embedded in our consciousness. It's actually something extra. And mindfulness by itself doesn't add that. So sometimes it's possible to, uh, to see that we are entangled because we are believing me or mine about something. And to gently, sometimes it's possible, not always, sometimes it's possible to disentangle the me or the mine, to not, not identify. 
So, recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-identification. These are some four four things that you may want to check on in the course of practice uh, when it feels a bit entangled and a bit a bit sort of caught up. What which which piece is missing? And uh, conveniently, that spells. Uh, is it an acronym? Is that the word? Arrain. So recognition, acceptance, investigation, non-identification. You can just, it's sort of a check, something to check out what's missing. So actually when we talk about mindfulness, there's, 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 uh, there's many, we use one word, but, but there's so many different aspects to it. I remember uh, years ago I used to be uh, I used to live in the States and, and there was a, a meditation center and took a weekly class on what's called the foundations of mindfulness. And it lasted some, I think two years it was, every week, or I can't remember, it's a long time. And one week, there were about 30 people in the class, teachers said, uh, we were sitting in a circle, to go around and everyone say one or two words that defined what mindfulness meant to them. And what was interesting to me that we went round 30 or 35 people and no two people said the same thing. And these, these people have been practicing a long time. So just to say how much, uh, how many dimensions and aspects this word has, this, this practice has. So uh, I remember someone using the word bodyfulness and I thought that was very helpful. So this word mindfulness tends to, we measure something from here up and it's sort of the mind looking mind looking at everything and there's a, uh, a disembodiment or detachment but really the practice of mindfulness is an embodiment the body is full of life full of aliveness full of connection bodyfulness openness so these are words that can sometimes key us in to different aspects of the quality of mindfulness. Openness. Mindfulness is a very open quality. Spaciousness. Wakefulness. Awake. Aliveness. Not being lost. So mindfulness again knows what's going on. Not lost. I'm not lost in something. I'm, I know what's going on. Even if it's difficult, I know Presence, being, respect. So my bringing mindfulness to life is really to pay respect to life. All the things, as I said, that we take for granted. What's so interesting about the breath? What's so interesting about walking? What's so interesting about doing the washing up? And to really give life a really deep and wide respect, saying, actually, 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 Nothing in life is more sacred than anything else. Everything deserves attention, deserves uh, the, the heart's presence. And we might also use the word heartfulness. So sometimes, and, and it's actually quite common, less so now, but I uh, remember in more, more the early years of the Dharma coming to, to the West, sort of in, in the 80s, that there was quite a emphasis uh, in the teaching on being very uh, it really was a mind practice lots of uh, very precise attention and, and that really does have its place in practice 
the ability of the mind to be very uh, precise about what's going on and very microscopic even. But where is the heart in that? It, it can be, and it, it, it is for some people, that too much emphasis on that kind of precision means that the heart aspect begins to uh, get left out. So what would that mean, to be in the present moment with heartfulness? I feel that a full uh, practice of mindfulness very much means heartfulness too. And that's a whole exploration, what does that mean? So all of that, what I've just uh, described, is in a way one side of what we might call a spectrum of mindfulness. And it's what we might call the passive aspect. So it's mindfulness in its character of just being open to what is. Being with what is, being open to what is, receiving the present moment, not, uh, not wanting to change anything. Very passive. Uh, oftentimes that's the way mindfulness gets talked about. And it can get a sense that the practice is just about that. It's just about uh, opening, seeing, receiving, being with what is. Hugely uh, beneficial and uh, necessary and beautiful way of practicing. But not, not at all the whole of the path. So there's a spectrum, we might say, of being completely open and receiving on one end. And on the other end, of actually mindfulness being something that's quite involved and making choices in what's going on. Not passive, but active. And it's a spectrum. And a full practice explores the range of the spectrum. doesn't just sit on one side or the other and, and let it be. So what, what, what's this other side, this more active side, uh, that we actually hear about less, <coughs> I think? It involves understanding, uh, the, the journey of understanding what it is that leads uh, to happiness. What it is that leads to my happiness and what it is that leads to suffering. Buddha put huge, huge emphasis on exploring this, on really making this a very alive uh, questioning and discovery in our life. So we're bombarded by, by messages, uh, culturally, socially, advertising, media, da-da-da-da-da, uh, about what we need to be happy. And sometimes as practitioners we pay lip service, yeah, I know, but what I really need is, you know, then a, a string of other qualities. But to really know deep down, to investigate, actually where does happiness come from? Where does suffering come from? And the Buddha says, it's dependent on what are the qualities in my mind and heart. When there's, for instance, love there, friendliness, uh, there's happiness there. Do we know that connection so deep that we can't be convinced otherwise? When there's irritability there, there's unhappiness there. When there's anger there, sometimes there's the seduction of anger and the the feeling of release of it, but generally speaking, anger, although it's quite complicated, anger is something that brings with it unhappiness. Are we clear about that? When there's greed there, there's actually unhappiness. 
When there's a preoccupation with accumulation, brings unhappiness. When there's uh, patience, there's happiness. When there's equanimity, calmness, collectedness of mind. These are precious, precious qualities of mind and heart that bring with them happiness. And this investigation is really a huge investigation. What is it that leads to happiness? What is it that I can uh, is really leading to my suffering? So it's not just this passive aspect of mindfulness. Mindfulness is very involved in understanding in the present moment what might be lacking. If there's if there's a quality of I'm being mindful, but there's also all this added self-judgment going on. Probably kindness is lacking. And mindfulness notices that and then cultivates kindness in the moment. Or dullness. Cultivate energy in the moment. Or impatience. What would it be to, to invite, to cultivate patience? So there is, there is an activity, an involvement in a very skillful and wise way with the present moment in the present moment, recognizing what we need, but also, actually over, over years, developing qualities like patience, like equanimity, like love and compassion, like the depths of calmness. This is a huge part of practice. It's not just about opening and being in the present moment. It's about really investigating what we need to cultivate and cultivating it, actually doing it. So there's this passive side and there's this active side. And the active side has the cultivation as being very, very important. And it also has, as part of the active side, what we might call the, the, the factor of investigation. So this is also really, really important. It's not, as I say, it's not enough to just sit there and be in the present moment and the loveliness of that, or the difficulty of that even. What does it mean in the Dharma sense to investigate? So again, we investigate, as I said uh, in the morning, we investigate our particular difficulties, uh, our particular personality. What is this self that I find myself with? What is it uh, in a more sort of existential sense, this self? Not myself, different from yourself, but this, we all seem to have selves, and what is that? Is it something real? So this deep investigation of what it is to be alive. How is it that suffering comes about and how can we be free? We begin to investigate life. We begin to investigate reality and truth. As I said earlier, looking at these questions of impermanence, looking at the question of whether it is that anything can really satisfy me in itself, looking at the question of how it is that suffering arises looking at this whole question of ego and self, how that's a problem, how it uh, gets built up and entangled in the world, and how, how it is that we can be free of that. So mindfulness uh, comes with, with very definite agendas, these agendas of understanding happiness, letting go of suffering, understanding, understanding life in certain ways. It's not only in its uh, passive, agendaless uh, aspect. It also really, really does have an agenda. There's an agenda to practice. That's why 
someone who just, for instance, uh, practices, uh, you know, plays a sport very mindfully. You know, you get into the flow zone or whatever it's called, being being in the flow zone, and there's complete presence there, complete being in the moment, and it feels wonderful. Or playing a musical instrument, whatever it is, that's not actually a complete spiritual practice. Because there isn't this other agenda going on about understanding, about investigating. It's not enough just to be in the zone. So mindfulness does have an agenda and and we shouldn't shy away from that. Another agenda, or rather filling out one of these things more that, that mindfulness has, is investigating what it is that uh, supports any experience. So particularly experiences of suffering. I remember <coughs> some time ago going in to see someone where they were working and they were just sort of chatting briefly and I wasn't in a teaching relationship with this person so they were just telling me that I think work was quite difficult but the main thing was there was some difficulty going on in, relation, in their relationship with their boyfriend and... Um, they explained in, in a little detail some of the problems that were going on. And then, I, and then, and then they, they explained, and then they, then they sort of said, they were a, a practitioner too, and then they said, they said to me, oh well, I just, I just need to open to it all. I just need to open to the, you know, I just need to open to the difficulty and accept it and be with it. And the sense was, I, I know I'm supposed to do that, and it, and and it really, you know, it's difficult. But that's really what needs to be done. And my sense was, and I didn't say anything partly because I had to be somewhere else, and partly because I wasn't in a teaching relationship. Uh, but that's actually not what what needed to be done. It wasn't a matter of just opening to uh, keep opening to pain blindly and blindly. What needed to be done was to look at the whole um, structure of thoughts, beliefs, views, expectations, um, moods, all the factors, reactions that were coming in to build and feed this situation of suffering. So it wasn't a question of just opening to the difficulty of it and just accepting that. It was, there was, I mean, what she told me, I won't go into detail, but uh, what she told me, there was all kinds of stuff in terms of uh, unspoken reactions, beliefs, assumptions, etc., what I said before, that were not examined to see how they came together to feed this situation. And that some examination of that, and some saying, oh, I see, I'm assuming this, and that's probably not true, or I'm expecting this, and maybe that's not the most helpful thing, uh, or they're expecting, or whatever it is, Mindfulness has, uh, we could talk about the deepest agenda of mindfulness being this investigation of what supports suffering. Now that sounds at one level quite mundane, but uh, it actually has really, really deep levels to it. Everything comes together, moods, thoughts, views, attention, uh, all kinds of hidden beliefs, and they create uh, suffering. So how does um, how does suffering originate? There are always factors that support suffering. Uh, 
And part of the agenda of mindfulness, the, the deepest agenda of mindfulness, is actually unraveling, unraveling those factors that support suffering. And at an even deeper level, uh, and this is completely counterintuitive, any experience, not only suffering, is actually uh, what the Buddha would call compounded this way. It's built by all kinds of hidden factors in the mind. Any experience at all, it means any sound, any body sensation, any sight, any thought, any emotion, the, the actual experience of it is something that is compounded, fabricated, comes together. And the deeper gender of mindfulness is actually to see, to see that, see how any experience is, is built, how it originates, how it's compounded. So part of that, if we're just seeing suffering, is what needs changing. So in the example of my friend, it's, oh, if I change some of the spoken, uh, the way I'm speaking or the way I'm listening to the boyfriend or the expectations, that may ease the situation. But at the deeper level, in terms of understanding the very nature of experience itself, which is a whole even deeper level, even mindfulness itself, even the watcher, is something that's built. We don't see this going on. This is extreme. This is very subtle. Uh, but even there's there's nothing outside of the realm of. Uh, this agenda of mindfulness to look at and unravel, unravel how it's being built. So the sense of any experience, the sense of anything watching any experience, the sense of watching itself. Sometimes we think, well, there's just awareness and it's natural and it's sort of a fundamental substratum of, of existence. Mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, watching. But actually even that is something built and the agenda of mindfulness is to unravel that too. As we get to about the, the deepest, deepest sort of agenda of mindfulness. So actually I just want to say something at the end too, uh, finally, about mindfulness and its relationship to love. Um... As I mentioned earlier, it can be sometimes for some people there's too much of an emphasis on this precision of noting, precision of the mind. And where is the heartfulness? But I do feel that if someone is practicing in a, uh, in, a, in a full way, that one of the signs of deep practice is kindness. So sometimes, uh, you know, we kind of think, oh, someone who's been, you know, really spiritual, really practicing a long time, maybe they sort of radiant in some way, they glow in the dark or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but actually, the, uh, the, the real sign, I feel, of a deep practice, of a practice that's gone deep, is, is kindness. There's something in the heart that begins to change, and there's, there's the unlocking of the flow of kindness. And perhaps I might even go so far to say that if that doesn't begin to be opened over usually over time in practice, over years, something's, something's a little off in the practice, and something needs addressing, something needs looking at. And we may wonder, well, why, why is it that the practice of mindfulness, of being present, bringing attention, why does that lead to, to kindness? It's not an obvious link, I don't think. 
partly it has to do with what I talked about before, this aspect of acceptance in mindfulness. So that aspect of acceptance is very uh, open, non-judgmental, and it's sort of fundamental to the quality of mindfulness in its more passive aspect, certainly. And if you think about uh, a friend coming to you in difficulty, in hurt, or any time, what they need, what's a, uh, uh, a trademark quality of friendship is this, is this aspect of acceptance. That's something that's part of love. And so when we practice that over and over through mindfulness, accepting the present moment, good, bad, or indifferent, accepting the experience, that quality of acceptance begins to get woven into the fabric of our hearts and minds. And, and the quality of kindness is very, very related to that. And it can begin to become a habit in the heart, a habit of acceptance, a habit of kindness, instead of a habit of pushing away what we don't like. As we practice mindfulness, generally, slowly, there's less entanglement with our experience. So usually uh, something happens and we get all confused and, and knotted in there with it. Gradually, uh, mindfulness opens up space in awareness, so we become less entangled in things. And in the less entanglement, there's space for happiness to come. There's space for well-being to literally well up in the being. And usually it's a gradual process, gradual process. But it can be gradually that there, there becomes to be enough happiness inwardly. We feel, uh, we feel we have enough happiness, and then it's almost like it overflows, and we don't feel like we need to guard that or preserve. And there, we we are more uh, open to others because we feel we have enough. We don't feel like we need to hold on that we're beggars. When we open deeply, as, as, the, as the mindfulness practice uh, deepens, um, we do uh, open in receptivity, as I was talking about before. We, we, do, we are touched by life in, in an often very simple but very deep way, and touched by our existence, by the mystery of our existence, touched by consciousness itself, the fact that we can be aware. There's something amazing. And we're touched by the particulars, the uniqueness of every person, certainly. The diversity, the uniqueness of every moment. No two moments are ever the same. This this infinite diversity of of, uh, experience begins to really touch itself. Something in the heart uh, just opens at that touch. Not only are we opening to particulars, but we also begin to open to a sense of interconnectedness. That becomes, as mindfulness deepens, that becomes just more and more obvious. Our sen- the sense that, yeah, we're unique, but we're also completely not separate. And nothing in life, nothing in life is in any way disconnected or separate from anything else. And that sense of interconnectedness, as well as the... Uh, 
awesomeness of the diversity, they together, both of those uh, fuel love in the heart. When there's a sense of interconnectedness, of, of connection, of oneness, how can there not be love? When there's a sense of the beauty of the diversity, also, how can there not be love? And we become less, uh, less self-preoccupied. Paradoxically, this journey of uh, what might look like you know, complete self-obsession to come here for a day or a week or a month or a year and just look inward at one's experience. Uh, completely self-obsessed, it seems. And yet out of that, somehow, comes this release from self, self-obsession, this release from self-preoccupation. We're not our our being is not caught up with ego with ourselves so much, and there's a natural a loosening and opening of the of the care of the um, of the warmth to to all of life and all beings. Just finally, at the deepest level, when uh, or at at a deep level, when. What happens as or organically as part of the mindfulness? Typical reaction to experience is to push away what we don't like and pull towards us what we do like. As the mindfulness uh, deepens, that pushing and pulling begins to be relaxed. It begins to uh, soften and we let go of that pushing and pulling. In that letting go, the letting go of the clinging and the grasping, a whole new way of being in the world begins to open up. A whole new sense of life begins to open up. Uh, in, in that openness that comes as we let go of clinging, the, clinging uh, the natural letting go of clinging that comes with mindfulness as it deepens, uh, effortlessly, as part of that opening, there is love. It's just part of a natural movement. There's a kind of um, innocence there because we're not relating to our experience, to ourselves, to others, to the present moment with any kind of violence of pushing or pulling. There's a, there's a relaxing at subtler and subtler levels of that and it's a completely non-violent way of being, which, in a way, we could say reveals love, naturally. And all of this is a is, uh, very real possibility for us, very real possibility for practice. If we talk about mindfulness, and it really, this is where it uh, leads, and this is not just an abstract sort of theory it's something that's very real very possible for everyone for everyone something that can really um, radically alter the heart and the heart's perception of life thank you for listening To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.